Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. Today on the podcast, we're going to hit a burdensome topic that affects the vast majority of us in veterinary school today, and that is student debt. Yes, uh, we continue to hear about the gloomy debt-to-income ratio for veterinarians and how the cost of veterinary school is, is a huge barrier to even going to vet school itself. And let's not also forget about the stress and anxiety that it can cause once we're veterinarians and, and how are we going to pay off these loans that we have. But I've realized that often we leave out one specific and very important detail when it comes to our loans, and that's how the heck does it actually work when we need to start paying them off. So with that, I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast someone that's going to help us sort that out. We've got Dr. Tony Bartels joining us today, and Tony is a 2012 graduate of Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine, where he earned his dual DVM and MBA degrees. Tony currently works for VIN, the Veterinary Information Network, where he has direct involvement with researching and speaking about student debt, and he also provides guidance on loan repayment and management. And when he's not working with the numbers, Tony uh, also finds the time to practice small animal and exotic medicine. All right, so welcome to the podcast, Tony. How's it going? Great. Great to be here. It's great that you do this. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I'm really glad uh, you were able to make it in town. You're here for a, uh, a SCAFA meeting tonight uh, to talk about some of the things we're going to talk about today. So I'm glad we could do a little bit of a, uh, a preview for me right now and, and kind of talk about some of these topics relating to finance and loans and everything that you know a lot about. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so before we begin, um, I know you have a bit of a unique journey uh, towards becoming a veterinarian and to doing what you're doing now. Could you share a bit about your background, where you've been, and um, and how you got to where you are today? Uh, sure. Um, I actually came to veterinary medicine as a second career. Uh, I started out uh, in corporate finance. Uh, I worked with Ernst & Young, which was one of the big five accounting firms at the time, now there's only four. Uh, one of them went under or imploded when Enron went down, and I was lucky enough to be part of the cleanup for Enron. And uh, after that, I kind of had my fill of corporate finance. Uh, I got to see a lot of the tomfoolery and the games that people play with the code, and mm-hmm. and just uh, you know, there's something not that satisfying about making rich people richer. So I started <laughs> looking looking elsewhere and. At the time, I, I adopted a, a mutt and uh, had no inkling of veterinary medicine, wasn't even on my radar. And, and just through that experience, I started volunteering at humane societies, and I ended up volunteering at the Shedd Aquarium and ran into veterinarians and couldn't believe the um, amazing people that I met along the way and started investigating that and thought it would be something I could do as a, a career. So I made the switch, and luckily Colorado State had a combined MBA DVM program, which was great because I already had the business right background, and I was thinking about doing an MBA anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a natural fit, and I figured, why not live in Colorado? It's most one of the most beautiful places in the world. So. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Cool. So I know you just got out of practice. Um, what uh, what type of practice were you doing before? S- small animal exotic practice. Awesome. So that's that's what my experience was before I went to um, vet school. So I did a lot of nonprofit work, uh, shelter medicine, and um, low cost clinic type work. And I also and that was kind of what I've, I worked in after um, I graduated for a while too. Before the student debt thing kind of engulfed all of my time. Right, right. <laughs> So speaking of student debt and your work at VIN right now, mm-hmm. could you run us through a typical uh, day-to-day uh, flow for you or what, what yeah. your main responsibilities are? Sure. So um, VIN, Veterinary Information Network, is a uh, online community of veterinarians, and there's over 50,000 veterinary members, including students. And it's everything that you can possibly imagine, you know, medical-wise, all the way to student debt and anything else that you might want to talk about or know more about in veterinary medicine. So we kind of took a lot of the uh, principles that makes VIN so successful in terms of just colleagues helping colleagues in everyday situations and challenges that they come across. And we're like, well, why don't we do this with student debt? They were getting a lot of questions. Paul Pyan, the co-founder and, and CEO of VIN, was getting a lot of questions about mm-hmm. student debt and, and didn't really know how to answer them because you know he didn't have any debt anymore. Uh, it, things are a lot different borrowing-wise right. than when he went through and, and uh, finished his specialty. So um, I ran into him randomly and uh, 
started talking about student debt and all the things that kind of pissed me off about veterinary medicine, student mm-hmm. debt being one of them. And and we started just exploring, you know, how do, how am, how am I going to handle my debt? And then my now wife, who was a uh, classmate of mine, um, she had more debt than I did because she was an out-of-state person. Mm-hmm. So we started exploring that, and that turned into now we do almost consultations on VIN. So people will post their situations, uh, their student debt situations, how much debt they have, how much debt their spouse has, what their income is, you know, mm-hmm. what they're thinking about doing. And we, we put all of those pieces together, and we treat it like a medical case. And we say, well, here's your options. You know, this is what you could do. Here's option B if you want to do this and, you know, see what fits best for them so. wow, very cool yeah all right well let's let's start off super simple mm-hmm. um i would say the majority of vet students these days take out loans for their tuition yep um what is a loan exactly because i think a lot of us will just say all right i know i, I gotta pay whatever it is twenty five fifty thousand dollars a year uh the government's gonna give me some or a bank's gonna give me some money um but what is a loan and yep. what's the difference between the types of loans that that you see students having nowadays. Yeah, so I like you pointed out, I mean most, most you have to pay a certain amount of tuition and fees just to for the privilege of sitting in the seat. And if you don't have that amount on hand or you don't know somebody that has that amount to give you, then you have to take out a loan. So the government will give you the that money either to cover the tuition and fees and an additional amount to cover living expenses if mm-hmm. you don't have the amounts to to cover, you know, the everyday cost of living, room and board, um, you know, car insurance, health insurance, all that mm-hmm. other stuff. They'll give you amounts to cover that. And there's a cost associated with that, which is interest, mm-hmm. right? And some loans have higher interest than others. Uh, unfortunately, um, the loans available from the Department of Education now, at least for veterinary school, predominantly accumulate interest as immediately after you receive them. Okay. Um, when I graduated from 2012, it was one of the last years that you could receive su- what were called subsidized loans, and those loans didn't accumulate interest while you were in school and didn't start accumulating interest until you started repayment. Those days are over, so mm-hmm. that's one of those additional expenses that a lot of people um don't realize until they get either deeper in, take a second look, or when they hit repayment, and all right. of a sudden they've got thirty thousand dollars more than they were anticipating. Right. So you're saying that if I get a loan disbursement payment, say uh, to me for tuition on January first mm-hmm. of this year, that the interest on that loan is going to start uh, accruing on January second or first or the first. Yeah, when you for, when you first receive it. Okay. So, you'll, so that's you, good to know. Yeah, you'll start accumulating interest uh, and but certain loans accumulate more interest than others. So, the Department of Education, you're only allowed to borrow a certain amount of funds under what are called the direct unsubsidized loans, and that's 40,500 for a US student attending a US health profession college mm-hmm. like veterinary medicine. Once you eclipse that limit, the 40500 then you get bumped up into another category, which are called direct grad plus loans. And those have a higher interest rate, mm-hmm. higher fees. They cost you more money over time. Right. So what we try to do is just help people realize that if you're on the cusp or you have any other way of uh, finding alternative sources to fund your education, the, lo- the, the more you can stay out of that direct grad plus category, the better off you'll be in the long run because ultimately those are some of the most expensive loans. Got it. And so what is the typical interest rate nowadays, do you happen to know? Yeah, so right now they're about as low as they've ever been. Uh, On a direct unsubsidized loan, they're 5.31%, and the grad plus loans are a percent higher, so they're 6.31%. However, those rates change every June. So coming up here soon, uh, they're gonna get changed, and they're tied to the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. And right now, if we were to get fixed today, the interest rates on those same loans would be about 6%. Okay. So they're going to go up. Got it. Unfortunately, and likely going to continue to go up because that interest rate that we saw now was part of some of the lowest interest rates we've ever seen. So it's not likely that they're going to come down. Got it. Got it. Um, Now, getting into the nitty gritty of interest accumulation, I know a lot of us get confused about what amount of the loan the interest is calculated upon. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, let's say on day one, um, I've got $100 in in loans um, and I'm making, or there's a 1% interest rate, so the next day I'm gonna have $101 mm-hmm. to pay. Does the, the next day's uh, interest accumulation then, is that based on the $101 or based on the principal, the $100? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So luckily it's based only on the original 
borrowed amount while you're in school. Okay. So uh, interest is calculated on a daily basis. However, the interest rate, the, the 5.31 that I quoted earlier, is an annual mm-hmm. rate. So you take that rate divided by, they typically divide it by 365.25 mm-hmm. to account for leap years. Okay. So uh, that would calculate your daily interest rate factor and you multiply that by your principal. So the $100 that you said. So if you borrowed 100, you would only calculate interest on that 100. Okay. And then the interest accumulates separate from the loan. But once you graduate, and you start repayment, then that interest gets added onto your principal. And at that point, now you're accumulating interest on interest. So the lower that amount is, the lower your repayment cost will be over time. Right. So once you graduate, that's when you start to see a huge increase in your your interest. Right. Okay. Now let's get into uh, the main topic of of discussion, at least that I want to talk to you about today, which is what happens after you graduate. Yeah. I think that... For the majority of us, again, when we get our loan disbursements, it's pretty much a, it's an automatic thing for us. We know that we're going to need X amount of dollars. Yes, and then we get that into our account or whatever, wherever it's going to go. But we don't know what's going to happen uh, the day we graduate. So I know there are many different options in terms of how you repay, mm-hmm. uh, what you repay, and uh, the different avenues that you can take to, to repay those. So can you just run us down in, in a simple uh, way of looking at it, what happens you know, the day after you graduate in terms of your, your loans? Yeah, so, so luckily nothing officially happens the day after you graduate. Uh, the only thing that changes is hopefully your, your status So with, with the Department of Education. So they no longer think that you're in school, mm-hmm. which is important because you, you can't do a lot of things with your loans while you're in school. However, once you graduate, then you're officially in your grace period. Mm-hmm. So if you've never used the grace period on your loan, um, you will automatically enter the grace period window, which is six months. Okay. So you don't officially have to do anything for six months. However, it's a good idea to do things with your loans immediately mm-hmm. after you graduate. Because of that capitalization effect that we talked about, um, starting repayment earlier can actually help you. It can help reduce the starting repayment balance, mm-hmm. the amount that you're going to accumulate interest on going forward, the earlier you start. One of the only ways that you can end your grace period is to consolidate your loans. Okay. So that if you have all federal um, loans, you can use a federal direct consolidation loan and consolidate them all together. So they're going to basically take all of the different loans that you accumulated during your academic career and put them all into a single loan. That's a, And they, they average the interest rate. So you're still paying about the same amount of interest. Uh, it's just now on one single loan. But mm-hmm. as part of that consolidation, you can waive your grace period and enter repayment. And what that does is it, it, it sets your starting repayment balance. So rather than waiting six months and having that interest accumulate during mm-hmm. that six-month grace period, you're doing that maybe in the first 30 days after you graduate. You're reducing that additional interest that's going to get added on to your principal, and then you're reducing the starting repayment balance. I see. So typically it's it's 6 months from the day you graduate. 6 when- months is the is the longest time okay. that you have. But I I'd, I'd come around to um, advising that folks get started as fast as they can right. because a lot happens in those first few months after you graduate. You know, it, whether you're starting an internship and you're moving or you're mm-hmm. starting your first job, you know, it's it's best to take care of those loans right away when you're kind of in the right frame of mind to do so and that you're not starting your first job trying to learn how to be a doctor doing all these things that are you know going to be way ahead of what do i do with my loans so if you get them taken care of um first you'll save yourself the money and you don't have to worry about oh crap what do i do with them six months down the line got it because if you don't do anything uh you you will be put in a standard 10-year plan Mm -hmm. that's a default repayment plan on on most federal student loans and you know, for a two hundred thousand dollar balance uh, at roughly six percent, that's over two thousand dollars a month, right? So that can be a pretty shocking right Holy bill moly. that comes due, right? So right. if you take a proactive approach, you have more options, um, and then you know, as part of the consolidation, you can also choose your repayment mm-hmm. plan, right? So you don't have to use the standard ten year. Most people aren't going to want to or even be able to afford to. If, for instance, if you're in an internship mm-hmm. or maybe you haven't started your job yet, so now you get to choose your repayment plan. And that's where we get into the second part of your question is what are my options? Right. Income-driven repayment is one of the big ones. So as the name implies, you can have payments that are based on your income. 
So if you show what your income is, or if maybe you don't have income because you consolidated your loans within the first 30 days of graduating and you don't have income yet, your payment amount would be zero mm-hmm. for the next 12 months. Right? That gives you some breathing room to not have to worry about your student loans, right. but you're still considered current on them and mm-hmm. you don't have any payment due. You've locked in the lowest starting repayment balance that you can. You've got 12 months to kind of figure out what's going on, right? right? What your income looks like, what your expenses look like, how much money do I ultimately have to put towards things like my student loan repayment. Right. So it buys you a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also choose extended or graduated repayment options, which depending on your situation might work. Um, but I'm a huge fan of the income-driven mm-hmm. repayment plans because I really like being able to set my payments either at zero for that first 12 months or as a manageable percentage of whatever my income is got it so they do not dictate the percentage of your income that you have to pay back i assume there's a minimum obviously but it sounds like you get to decide how much or rather what percentage of your income you're going to pay back as long as you have a plan sort of so it it depends on which plan you qualify for and that's where it gets really confusing Mm -hmm. and it depends on your borrowing history it depends on the loan types that you have um and then ultimately which one you choose right so there are a suite of options available uh, for a lot of people, especially more recent borrowers, they have more options available to them. Mm-hmm. For somebody like myself and my wife who um, borrowed a longer time ago, uh, the options are more limited, right? Mm-hmm. So it was more of a, which plan do we qualify for, right? And then ultimately, which one is, is best for us? So uh, we actually built a simulator in Vin Foundation. So vinfoundation.org uh, forward slash loan sim, you can run your simulations to see mm-hmm. which repayment plan makes the most sense for you, because it can be difficult to figure out, you know, which one should I go with? long term and there's uh, there's all these intricacies in terms of well if i don't pick the right one now what happens if i want to switch to one later and there are side effects and consequences of that so it really helps to know some of those things before you choose one so you don't have to try to fix right fix it later now are there any benchmarks or recommendations on your part mm-hmm. of the percentage of your income that should go towards your loan repayment every month. Yeah. So I, I that's another reason why I like the income-driven repayment is it kind of takes that decision away from me. It's So the minimum monthly payment that they take for some of the newer plans are 10% of your okay. discretionary income, which is a calculation the government uses for a variety of purposes, one of them being student loan repayment. Mm-hmm. So 10% of your discretionary income. So it's usually a number that's less than your gross income. Mm-hmm. You can also use your adjusted gross income from a tax return. But now we start to see the complexities because when you start to tie student loan repayment to tax returns, now it's subject to all of the intricacies that are also wrapped up in the U.S. tax code. So there are certain things that you can do to um, lower your adjusted gross income, some good things like retirement savings, moving expenses. Uh, student loan interest that you're making payments on, all of those come off of your taxable income Mm -hmm. as adjustments, lower your adjusted gross income, lower your income-driven repayment amount. So those are all good things in my opinion, right? Right. So uh, the more beneficial plans, like I said, uh, have your payment at 10% of your discretionary income. I think that's a great measure. I don't, there's, there's no reason to me to pay more than is required towards your student loans. Mm -hmm. And depending on what your income and earnings look like in the future. And this you know, requires a little bit of a crystal ball. So uh, depending on what career path you see yourself going down, paying the minimum can save you money in the long run. Explain. Yeah, right. So however, it's a huge, huge side effect there because you, oftentimes you're not making payments that equal the interest that accumulates every month, especially let's say that that example I gave in the first 12 months, your payment is zero. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not making any payments, but you're accumulating interest during that time. Right. But you're still considered current on your loan. So your loan balance is growing. Mm-hmm. Right. If you take that out to the logical end, well, I'm going to have a whole lot remaining out in the future. Well, what happens? Right? So the government has some rules set up that says we're only going to let you play this game for so long. So we're going to give you 20 or 25 years, depending on the plan that you're using, mm-hmm. until uh, we say no more, right? right? You're done. We're going to forgive what's left. Hmm. And when they forgive what's left, you get a uh, 1099C 
a cancellation of debt notice in the mail that says, well, the government has recognized that we canceled this amount of debt on your behalf. You have to report this as income. So you have to pay tax on that amount. Okay. So it's, it's almost like putting your loans on layaway, if you will. And at some point, you're going to have to make good on the taxable amount that's due. Depending on what that is, what your earnings are, uh, that can be manageable as well and also can reduce the overall amount that you pay on your student loans greatly in some cases. Right? And this only works out that way where we see really high debt levels and low starting income levels. Right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of describes what happens in veterinary medicine. Right? We, we, we take out the same or same or similar amount of debt that a physician does, but our incomes don't approach physician incomes for right. quite some time, if ever. Right. Right? So that leaves us to uh, benefit, if you will, from this tax forgiveness provision that's in the student loan code if you're familiar with it and can stomach some of the side effects like your loan balance growing for the next 20 or 25 years. Right. So there seems to be a bit more of some deep strategy that needs to go into yeah. play here. Right. Going back to a previous point you made regarding uh, the income that is either uh, your gross income or what is reported on your tax return. And again, this is going to go a little bit more specific than I probably wanted to go, in, at least in our conversation mm-hmm. today. But let's say you were uh, filing filing your tax return jointly. So mm-hmm. if you were married or yeah. you have kids, I assume that's going to change the ballgame a little bit too because they look at your income as a household, not just as what I'm making as a veterinarian. Let's say I'm making, just to put very round numbers on, $100,000, mm-hmm. like we could only hope. Um, <laughs> and let's say my wife is making $100,000. Um, we're talking about $200,000 right. income household. So that's going to change it quite a bit, I yep. would imagine. Absolutely. And in that case, uh, it also depends on whether or not your spouse has debt. If, mm-hmm. the, if your spouse has debt in that equation, then they'll also factor that into the calculation. Right. So that describes my situation. So my wife has debt. She was a non-resident student at uh, Colorado State and finished a few years before I did. Uh, and I was an in-state, but finished a few years after she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she has a higher proportion of our household student debt, we file our taxes jointly, a higher percent of our payment based on our combined incomes goes towards her student loans mm-hmm. than towards mine. Okay. And because of that, and this is this is kind of an anomaly for our situation, but it can help happen to those, uh, I call them um, double, double debt, double vet <laughs> households. They, um, I receive almost a secondary benefit, if you will, having my payment almost be artificially lower because her debt balance is higher. So it makes more sense for me to stay on an income-driven repayment and plan for the forgiveness than it would if I had my own income going towards my own share of the debt without factoring hers in. So it does get really complicated really quickly. So if your spouse doesn't have debt, then sometimes it makes sense to file your taxes separately. That can get really complicated depending on the state that you live in. I mean, some states are community property states, which it makes it difficult to completely separate your incomes. Mm-hmm. So that can factor in sometimes good, sometimes bad. Uh, sometimes it's pretty easy. It just makes more sense. You'll, you usually end up paying more in federal income taxes by filing your taxes separately. But sometimes the amount you save in your student loan repayment is so much greater than the amount that you pay in taxes that it still makes sense right. to file your taxes separately. But that also confuses the hell out of the tax accountants. So they, when you go there with their situation, they're like, well, why on earth would you want to file separately? And then you have to at least have enough knowledge to tell them, well, because these income-driven repayment plans are so much more beneficial for my situation, I think that this is going to be a better idea. And then they start to dig a little deeper and usually see that it's the case. Right. And that actually brings me to a, a unrelated, well, kind of unrelated question that I've experienced, at least with uh, when I was filling out my FAFSA form the last <laughs> couple of years. And I realized since, since I filed jointly as well, that even though I'm making zero income right now, but my wife is, <laughs> I guess my income status isn't really what I think of it as me not making any money. It's really my wife making right. my money right. for me. Yeah. If, if you want to look at it yeah. that way. So in that regard, maybe I should be thinking about filing separately, at least while I'm in school, because it may provide uh, or it may be beneficial to me in terms of interest rates or scholarships or things like that. Um, you know, I don't know about in your changing anything for your in-school availability of funding mm-hmm. options. That would be something that you'd want to check with the financial aid office for sure to mm-hmm. see if that would make a difference. But I can say 
it may make sense for you to file your taxes separately at least right before you graduate, the mm-hmm. year before you graduate, because if you wanted to have a zero payment on your loans and they ask you if you're married and you say you don't have any income, but they're like, well, how did you file your taxes last year? And you say jointly, then they're going to want to see right. your spouse's income, which means your payment is going to be based on your spouse's income. Right. If you file your taxes separately and you utilize page earn which is one of the more beneficial, and I suspect that you might qualify for it, but most folks who have started borrowing after 2012 or do not have any loans from mm-hmm. before 2007, they would qualify for page earn and then you can separate your incomes. Okay. Right, so that that's where it does get, I know that probably sounds really confusing, but that's some of the stuff that we get into more details of in right. like the lectures. <laughs> right, right. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about some more of the strategy stuff because I think this is really cool mm-hmm. and uh, definitely shedding light on what we could be doing to either save ourselves some money in the end or make it a little bit more attractive in terms of um, buying a house or getting yeah. buying a practice. So big question that comes up a lot in uh, in school, at least we're at Mizzou, uh, specifically in VBMA and some other uh, club meetings that we have is, for example, if I want to go buy a practice within a few years after I graduate, is it better to have more money saved up, so more capital that I can put towards a loan towards a practice, or is it better to lower my debt bur- burden as much as I can to make myself more attractive to the bank mm-hmm. to get a loan from them? It seems like it's a very intricate dance that you have to play. So I want to get your opinion on what's better, pay off your loans quick or hang on to your loans, build your capital uh, so you can spend that money and invest in yourself uh, before you start paying those loans back. Yeah. Wow. Another... Uh... Wow, that that one can wrap up an hour just in itself. Right. But yeah, that's that's a great question. So the I tend to fall on the side of um, don't pay any more than you have to. And the problem is it it really ultimately depends on your situation. But in some cases, you know, paying down faster. What does that mean? So if if we just use again a generic number, just for the ease of argument, uh, two hundred thousand dollars. Paying down faster, you're you're paying over two thousand dollars a month mm-hmm. towards your student loans at a standard ten year plan. Mm-hmm. Let's say that's about as fast as you want to pay that off. If your starting income and you're only a single income household is say seventy five, eighty thousand, uh, that's pretty close to half or forty percent of your salary, right. right? So that really isn't even an option. Right. right. I mean, for most people that you can't operate like that unless you're living with your parents right. or in the back of a clinic. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's not something that you want to do. And it doesn't put you in a good position to be able to buy a practice if the opportunity should arise. Right. So uh, in those instances, I really believe that having your payment as a manageable percentage of your income, and I think 10% is phenomenally manageable percentage mm-hmm. of your income, it gives you so much more options to save for emergencies, to save for retirement, save for a practice, otherwise have a life, right? You don't, right. and you, you have more opportunities available than if you're trying to just pay down your student debt because you think that's going to make you a more attractive um, borrower for a bank. And in reality, that's probably the opposite is probably true. Okay. If the bank banks tend to operate on what's called cash flow lending, and if you're putting 40, 50, 60 percent of your monthly cash flow, right, your your income that you have after taxes towards your student loan payment that's over two thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. you don't look like a good investment to a right. bank because you have uh, you're a, you are very risky to them because if anything should happen, all of a sudden you can't make your practice mortgage payment. Right, because you have right? to pay the loan Because you got to pay the loan pay the loan off. So, and, and again, you don't have to pay your loan like that. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you can do that if your income allows you to and you have enough uh, savings and you, maybe you're able to get that practice loan, but have it set at a manageable percentage like using something like income-driven repayment because that's what's going to show up on your credit report mm-hmm. is this 10% of your income, that's going to show as the payment even though your total debt to income looks quite high and they may raise an eyebrow about that, that's not nearly as big a factor as what does your month to month cash flow right. look like. So you're going to be a better candidate for a practice ownership or even home ownership perspective if you have your student loan payment based on your income rather than some artificial amount where you're trying to pay it down as, as quote, fast as, as fast as possible. Right. And I guess too that it also, you have to take into, effect, uh, take into account 
the personality, if you will, of of the lendee. Where mm-hmm. if, if someone is going to be very uh, anxious or apprehensive about having debt for a long time, sure. that may not be the way yeah. to go. But if you're if you can come to terms with it, or if you can uh, make yourself okay with it, you're, you're going to have debt for. 10, 15, 20, mm-hmm. 30 years, whatever it's going to be, especially if you're a practice owner, you may have debt for a heck of a long time paying yeah. off the, the practice. Um, that's okay. It, it, it's all about the long-term and strategy and 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 the the big picture here. Yeah, absolutely. Big picture. And it gives you it gives you so much more options. I mean, as an example, uh, Apple has, you know, eight, something like eight, I want to say, I can't even remember what the number was recently. I want to say $800 billion in cash right. reserves. And, they also have seventy plus billion dollars of debt, <laughs> long term debt. Well, why don't they just pay it off? Right. right, because they they feel like they can do better things with that money and are better positioned to have that money than to just simply pay off all of that that debt. Right. right, so you know I'm not saying that a veterinarian is is the same as the Apple Corporation, but you can think about it in the same way. You know, your the cash that you have in hand affords you more opportunities than the cash that you turn over to your loan servicer. Because you mentally can't handle having debt, it's it's okay to carry debt, especially student debt. I mean, this is an investment, a lifelong investment right. in yourself, right? Just like a home is a thirty-year mortgage, or your practice is going to be, I don't know, twenty, maybe even longer years. Right. These are it's okay to have that debt. Why isn't it okay to have your student debt? Right. right. As long as it's a manageable percentage of your income. Right. And I would imagine that some questions that you would get uh, on that topic is that you know we get. We get talked about how having credit card debt is bad. Oh, yeah. Having a, lo- uh, a car payment is bad, mm. and that's all debt. Mm. What's the difference? I thought debt was debt. Yeah, no, debt is not debt. Yeah, credit card debt, yes, bad. You know that right. awful. I mean, look at the percent, the interest that you're paying on that is is astronomical. It's almost impossible to get. And what is that? You're buying stuff on your credit card that's not worth anything, right? It's probably a depreciable or worth nothing after you've already bought it. So that's that's what the difference is. Your car is the same way, depreciating asset, right? right. Sure, you know, maybe you can't buy a $25,000 car with cash right off the lot, but if you're gonna pay it off in three, five years, okay, right. no, no big deal. Right. Um, but theoretically, you are not a depreciating asset, right? I right. didn't go to veterinary school thinking that my potential for earnings is going to decrease as soon as I get off the lot, right? right? So hopefully you're going to take that education and and you're going to appreciate in value, right? right? So you're going to have much better opportunities to do something with that money than taking it and throwing it to your student debt, especially when your income isn't in a position to allow that. Right. And I think another good example that we can give for the best students out there that may be a little less familiar with these type of long-term debt uh, debts that they have would be like buying a house. Mm-hmm. Most of the mortgages these days are 30 years, which they've been for a long time. Um, but we typically don't think of those as scary right. things in, in terms of having debt. It's a normal normal yeah. process of buying a house. Exactly. Uh, another question, which kind of goes towards uh, some of the bad news with student debt, but I think it's worth asking, is what happens if you can't make a payment? Yeah. What happens if you default? Well, so that's one of the great things I think about federal student loans. And one of the reasons that we, we haven't gotten to this yet, but I'll, I'll throw it out there, but private loan refinance. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the great things about federal student loans is it's almost impossible to default on them. Uh, one, because they have these income-driven options available. If your income is too low or zero, then your payment can be adjusted to zero based on the income-driven repayment. And you're not considered to be in default. You're still considered to be in good standing okay. on your loans. Uh, in order to default on a federal student loan, you have to not make a payment or make at least a minimum payment uh, for 180 days. Oh, wow. That's six months. Right. Right. You don't get that kind of leeway with a private loan in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Right. You're pretty much in default 30, maybe 60 days if you're lucky after not making a payment, uh, at least a minimum monthly payment on a private loan. So they have much more flexibility. But again, you shouldn't even, that should never be an issue because they also come with the built-in income-driven repayment options. Mm-hmm. So if you do hit hard times or all of a sudden maybe you have maternity leave or you switch jobs and you don't have any income, you can contact your loan servicer, tell them you don't have any income, and they will adjust your payment from whatever it was before down to zero, okay. and you're still current and working towards that forgiveness provision should you need it. All right, great. All right, now there's another question that I have, which we hear a lot about these loan forgiveness programs. Mm-hmm. 
what the heck is that? Yeah, right. Yeah, so there's a loan forgiveness comes in a couple of different flavors. So we've been talking a little bit about the loan forgiveness that comes with income-driven repayment. And that's basically how they just end this game, right? Mm-hmm. They don't want to play this game forever. They don't want people paying on their student loans in perpetuity. So they set a maximum time period. Under Page Earn, the new version of IBR, we're going to only let you do this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Under Revised Page Earn, the old version of IBR, we're only going to let you do this for 25 years. Right. Once you hit that maximum payment period, they forgive your loans. And in that case, it's going to be taxable. So you'll it, you'll have to be prepared for a bill from the IRS based on what your tax rate is, your federal income tax rate, and maybe a state income tax if you live in a state that has state income tax as well. There is another type of forgiveness that's public service loan forgiveness. So if you're working in the right job, so a 501c3 or other nonprofit state government tribal agency organization, mm-hmm. uh, if you're making payments on the right kind of loans, so these are direct federal direct loans, uh, those are the majority of loans that people have, especially coming out of vet school now. Um, but it's also a reason why it's important to look at what type of loans you have. And you also have to be making payments under the right repayment plans, which are these income-driven plans that we've been talking about. So if you do all those three things, you're making the right payments using an income-driven repayment plan under the right um, employment situation, 501c nonprofit type work, and they're all being, the payments are all being made to federal direct loans. After 120 monthly payments or 10 years, you might be eligible for public service loan forgiveness, which is tax-free forgiveness of the remaining balance of your loan. Okay. That's good to know. All right. So to close us out, wanted to get your recommendations in terms of who we should be talking to, where we should be looking for resources and and what resources to use, either when uh, we're in school now or Mm -hmm. when we graduate or five years from now or, or what have you. So uh, what what are your recommendations in terms of things like we're talking about today that can help us be more strategic and smarter with our loan payments in the future? Yeah. So I th- while you're in school, I think the first and best place to start is your financial aid office. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're really utilizing all of the options that you have. Um, you know, there are a couple of loans that are, quote, subsidized, still available, depending on the school that you attend. So health profession, student loans, um, also Perkins loans, those loans are available in smaller amounts and you have to jump through a little more hoops to get them. But if you are eligible, those can help you stay out of that direct grad plus category that we mm-hmm. talked about and save you money on, on those loan types. Uh, another thing while you're in school is you're often offered what's called the cost of attendance, which is your tuition and fees plus living expenses. Mm-hmm. Depending on how much it costs you to live, you may not need all of the living expenses that they offer you. And it's better to reduce or return the amounts that you're offered in excess than it is to keep those amounts Mm -hmm. and maybe save them for a rainy day kind of thing. That's kind of expensive money to do that, especially if you take the first year amounts because those are the ones that are going to cost you the most in the long run. So returning amounts within the 180 days of receiving them, you actually don't get charged the interest nor the fees that are associated with student loans. Mm -hmm. So if you have the ability to return monies, uh, do them rather than making payments while you're in school. I get a lot of uh, students that come up to me, particularly this past SAVMA at Texas A&M, and told the students that were telling me that they're making payments on their loans while they're in school. I'm like, why don't you just reduce the amounts that you're borrowing, mm-hmm. right? Because that now you're once you've taken them and you've taken them later, longer than 180 days and you're making payments, you're paying the interest and the fees associated with them. So now you're paying right. more than you had to if you just return them. So while you're in school, you know, use that financial aid office and, you know, look at reducing your costs to the extent of, uh, possible and maybe even re- returning award amounts uh, if you don't need them. Um, well, and in terms of returning them, how soon can you return or how soon do you have to return? Yeah, them? that would be something to check with your financial aid office. But I believe the window is 180 days within 180 days of receiving them okay. is when you won't be on the hook for the interest and the fees associated with them. Got it. Okay. So it immediately after you... Uh, Graduate, um, you want to get familiar with, uh, you know, studentloans.gov is going to be the portal that has all of the uh, consolidation information and student loan application information. Um, NSLDS.ed.gov, so the National Student Loan Data System is kind of the official student record uh, of all your borrowing history. So you want to check that particularly. It's a good idea to check it once a year while you're in school, but 
especially once you've graduated, mm-hmm. because that's going to give you an idea of all those loan types that you have, might help you with your consolidation, but it also gets you familiar with that interest that you've accumulated while you're in school as well. Um, then I would send you over probably to vinfoundation.org. That's where we've built what's called the Student Debt Center. We've got a lot of information, a lot of the information that we've talked about here and that we'll talk about uh, tonight at the lecture, uh, as well as... Um, the simulator where you can start to plug your numbers in there and see what repayment looks like for you based on your situation or what you're thinking about doing because it's amazing how variable everybody's situation can be whether you're doing an internship or residencies or you're married or you're moving to a community property state all of these factors come into play in terms of what your loan repayment costs could be right so uh, those would be the places um, I would I would start and then we also have uh, like I said, on, on VIN, we treat student loans like we do medical cases. Mm-hmm. So you can post your case on VIN. You can even post it anonymously. It's one of the only places that you can do that on VIN cool. um, to get further information and almost keep your student loan case as you work through it for any number of years open going forward. Right. Great. And then in terms of a little bit further down the road or, or even now, uh, accountants specifically. Yeah. I know our, all accounts are, are not created equal. Uh, do you, would you recommend relying on your accountant to provide some of this uh, guidance and recommendations, or should we be looking for accountants that are accounting services that specialize in student loans, or do all accountants have Ooh. information or yeah, uh, no, knowledge on these student loans? That is a, uh, that's the million dollar question. So I like it. I look to look at it more like a uh, governing by committee, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't go to a veterinarian to get, everything that you want right i mean you depending on the disease or the uh the the challenge that your client or your your uh case may be presenting you may need a number of different veterinarians who specialize in all different types of things right same applies i believe with finance Mm -hmm. right not all accountants are created equal not all certified financial planners are created equal not all lawyers are created equal right? right so you need to know enough about the situation you're dealing with to help them help you, mm-hmm. right? So what I like to tell people, especially when it comes to accountants and um, financial professionals, you know, find accountants if there are, if you can find an accountant that is really good with student loans, great. But honestly, you're looking for an accountant that can likely help you with your taxes and help you understand the cost implications of potentially filing jointly versus separately. Mm-hmm. And you know that because of your student loan situation, right? Right. So don't expect them to solve your student loan problems, but help, you can expect them to help you understand the implications of filing separately versus jointly. Right. Financial planners, again, don't you can't just go there and vomit your student loan information out on their desk and say, help me plan for this. Mm-hmm. The, you want to go to them with a plan. You know, this is how much I make per month. This is how much I want to save for retirement. This is how much I want to earmark for practice ownership or home ownership or my kid's college fund or whatever. They'll help you meet those goals based on how you divvy up your income. If student loan forgiveness is part of that financial plan, say, hey, I know I need thirty, forty, sixty thousand dollars twenty years from now. This is how much I want to put towards it. Where should I invest that? Right. You know, in a, in a relatively conservative environment, that is something your financial planner can help with. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to them with certain information in your head, so they can help best help you get to those goals. Just getting the information out there and, and starting to get yourself armed with this information, it's you're never going to be able to you're not going to be able to answer it all in one sitting, right? But it's it's designed to try to get you pieces of information so you can start to recognize your situation apply those pieces that you remember hearing about to your situation as it unfolds and then now you know where to go to ask the next question or at least you know what the next question is going to be right so we're just trying to narrow the focus a little bit because we start way out at the thirty thousand foot view and we're just trying to give people a little bit better view of what it is um that they need to to focus on next right Oh, I, I, I would say one other thing, particularly the, the, with the VBMAs. We, we do a lot of the student debt initiatives that we've done, at least with VIN Foundation and AVMA uh, together, is through VBMA, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of the things that, um, so we, we tend to introduce this information through these lecture series that we do or through VBMA events. And then what we like to see happen next is have the local VBMA groups, particularly those folks who are like, oh, wow, this really applies to me, mm-hmm. um, is take it to that next level. You know, having small group sessions where, you know, you get together and you look at your student debt, you bring your NSLDS output files and you mm-hmm. start to look at what's in them. 
you start to play with the loan simulators that are out there and say, well, what does this mean? Or what about this? Or tell me a little bit more about consolidation and the nuts and bolts about how that actually works. And you know, we can help facilitate that, right? So right. I've done follow-up where I don't have to come out necessarily to be on site, but we can do webinar type things where people then start to take the concepts that we're presenting, put them in the small group session with the VBMA things moderated by someone, either myself or somebody else that's, that's really knowledgeable in this. And we get those personal questions answered because until, you know, folks, it, it lands in their lap, that's when it all starts to, to make sense, right? So, and we want to help, help you guys get answers to all those questions you have when they start to come up. Great. So. And I would also say too, to add on, at least from the student's perspective, don't ever be afraid to ask questions about this stuff. You know, go to your deans or go to your financial aid office or go to your VBMA club if you have one on campus and, and just talk about it because there's nothing worse than being in the dark when it's too late. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really glad that I started ta- thinking about this now because um, like I like I said in the intro, far too often do we get to talk about the great things about making a budget and, and how to manage our money and, and doing investments and not going to buy that <laughs> cup of Starbucks when we don't have to <laughs> right. and so on and so forth. But I, I think especially this conversation was so great because we don't talk about what happens with this uh, astronomical amount of loans that we have when we graduate and what, mm-hmm. what do we do with them. So the thing that I, I've done, which I, I now granted, I'm a bit of a, I'm an Excel nerd, I call myself, but I, <laughs> but I love just numbers and, and kind of making future uh, plans and things, at least seeing the way things are, will look. I've actually made a budget for the year I graduate. So this information we've gotten today is really going to help me in terms of putting in a line about what I'm going to be paying towards my loan. So mm-hmm. I'd recommend uh, all the vet students out there to to make a budget, uh, what do you think you're going to be making? Uh, it's going to be able to tell you how much you can spend on a home, how much you can spend on doing fun things like vacation and whatnot. Uh, and it's going to give you a better picture of uh, actually how much money you're going to have to take out of your paycheck to put back towards school. Uh, yeah, I, and I don't. I mean, we we could definitely go out farther on that. And because one of the things I one of the thing, one of the questions that I get. Uh, most frequently or comments that I get from students is like, well, I think I'm going to be making about $80,000 when I graduate and I have $250,000 in loans. Well, that means I just have to suck it up for four years and I'll have my loans paid off to zero. And I'm like, well, it doesn't work like that. You gotta so you got to live. And one, you don't get all $80,000 of that, right? About a right. third of that is going to go to your federal, state, Social Security, right. Medicaid, all of that stuff's going to come right off the top of your paycheck. So you now you're whittled down to about a two thirds of what your gross is and interest still accumulates on your loans every day. So you can't pay $250,000 in loans off in four years at an $80,000 salary. It's not possible. And I think that's one of the light bulbs that comes out probably a little bit too late after you start to make a salary and figure out what your take home is, you realize, wow, this doesn't go nearly as far as I thought it would. Right. And that that is really eye opening to some people. And you know, you don't want to be living off a of ramen for the next fifteen right. years. And you don't have to, right? That's really what right. this is all about is you, you don't you don't have to do that. Right. So even if you're a first or second year, start thinking about this because you're gonna be ahead of the game. Um, obviously if you're third or fourth year, you have to start thinking about this. <laughs> right. But uh, but this is definitely something we should be thinking about probably from day one of vet school. Yeah. Absolutely. And another another uh, homework project for the VBMA folks. Go to your dean's office. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I do when I come to schools and I, I really dig into their what information they publish and they make mm-hmm. available to students and those who are researching veterinary medicine. And I, I'm, I'm quite disappointed at what I see, frankly, at, mm-hmm. on the websites in terms of costs. And there's a lot of costs that are that are kind of hidden in there that don't get discovered until you're in school and borrowing. Right. Right. And that includes summer semesters. Um, right. If you if you take on externships. I mean, these are all things where you're allowed to borrow extra funds for. One of the things that I I particularly catch people off guard, so before you hit senior year, I would approach your dean's office and have them have a sit down with you guys as a small group or a big group and explain to you how borrowing works for senior year because it's quite different than it is for the first three years. Mm. And that's usually because there's a summer semester. Sometimes the schools will actually charge additional tuition for that. These are things that might not be in your budget that you right. had planned for fourth year, right? right? And all of a sudden now you're borrowing, you know, 
10, $15,000 more than you anticipated and it catches you off guard, right? It adds right. to the stress that you're already under as a, as a fourth year. So getting more clarity on stuff like that is really you know, uh, what I would like to see more from the dean's office, but it's going to have to come from students. You know, right. they're going to have to demand that. Yeah. So going back, just, I would say start talking, keep talking, talk more. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that if, if this is the first time you're hearing about loan repayment and how loans work, it's probably incredibly daunting and very scary. It was for me. Uh, but the more you talk about it, the more it starts to make sense. It takes a while for it to kind of clear up, but the best way to do it, the best way to make it clear up is just to talk about it. So. Absolutely. And it's certainly easier than internal medicine. So right. <laughs> if, you, if you can if you can figure that out or you can figure out neuro, you're going to, you know, you guys are already ahead of the game. So yeah. Yeah. I have my neuro exam, uh, a small animal neuro exam tomorrow. I'm about to cry <laughs> any second. So uh, yeah. So. Well, good luck with that. All right. Well, uh, once again, thank you very much, Tony. This has been uh, incredible. A lot of this information is is topics that we don't get to hear a lot about, yeah. at least uh, in terms of finance. So thank you again. Um, it's great having you, and, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. Yeah. All right. Once more, I want to say a huge thank you to Tony for joining me on the podcast today and lending his expertise on this daunting, scary, but very important topic of student loans and student debt. We will put all of those resources that we talked about regarding your student loans and repayment on our website. So please be sure to check those out. They are a great guide and great resource for you at any point in vet school. So um, please help yourself and, uh, and check those out. And lastly, thank you so much for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. For more resources and more information about the podcast, please be sure to check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Also, feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or Instagram or even email me at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com with any suggestions or topics you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, Please also reach out to me if you'd want to be on the podcast yourself. I'd love to hear from you, get your insight on your experiences in vet school. So thank you again, and we will talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed. Dissecting the DVM.